We're going to be in Ephesians 5 this morning, if you would care to join me there. Last week, um, we began a a four-week series on marriage. And one of the things about marriage that I've learned over the years is the more I study, whether it's about... um, helping to do premarital counseling for, for couples that are going to get married or whether it's counseling couples who have been married and uh, or maybe doing a little assessment or if they're hitting some hard times, that kind of stuff. The more I study about marriage, the more I realize that I'm not really studying about marriage. I'm studying about what we were just singing about, really. That that is at the bottom of everything. That God, to us who he is, what he has done and is doing and will do to us, for us, with us, through us. That's the bottom of, every, of everything. That's the, that's the base of everything that life is about. And so even in a marriage series, if you're, if you're looking for like really practical tips and hilarious stories about marriage and all these kinds of things, you ain't going to find it here, not with me. Uh, not, not today. Uh, I did look up some marriage, some dad jokes about marriage because I kind of thought I was a little too serious all the time. But um, they were all so dumb. I just couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to do it. But um, a marriage series is really a Jesus series. It's just about how that maybe fleshes out in real life. And so let me recap last week just a little bit. Last week was the first week of the series. Looking at the, the strong rescue of God to his people. Start off with, in in Genesis 1 and 2, looking at God who, as he created uh, everything, and then put Adam in the middle of the garden and his rescue of Adam. But if you were to break it into kind of two two different ideas, when you are are unmarried, so whether you're you're single, you're divorced, you're widowed, you're... um, or maybe even if you're married to someone who just doesn't love the Lord and doesn't pursue the Lord, you know, if you are, are unmarried in the, in the, the sense that I'm about to talk about in regard to a helpmate, if it's just kind of you, uh, no matter where you are in life, how old or young you might be, here's, here's the situation is that God has, has a life, like he has like a mission for you that he has a, a plan for your life and it is awesome. And it is uh, to walk with him, to know him, to love him, to bring that love to everyone else around you. To it is he invites you into his life. Um, you don't invite him into your life because your life is a mess. His life is not a mess, so he invites you into his life. And and so as you're as you're walking through life and you are trying to follow the Lord and, and just believing that he's leading you and he's guiding you, you have him as your strong rescuer, him as your helper, and you have a community of people around you as a support. You have the church, you have Christian community, you have friendships. So that's kind of how it is when you're unmarried. That's, that's what's going on is you have this mission and, uh, the Lord is your strong rescuer and your community is your support system. And that's like, that's how you're like going through life. And that is really all that you need. Uh, in Second Peter 1, verse 3, here's a, you don't need to turn to it or anything, but it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Say everything that you need for your life to be everything that God wants your life to be, everything that you need for that to happen is yours just by knowing Jesus. That's all that you need. And when you know Jesus, he, 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 he brings you into this community so that you're not alone in that. So you have God as your strong rescuer vertically. You have strong community around you horizontally, and you are going about life's mission. That's what happens when you're unmarried. So I'm unmarried. That is, my, that is what describes my life. And no matter where anyone else in here, anyone else anywhere who's unmarried, that is, that's our situation. And it's pretty darn good. Like you really can't, you can't really ask for more. The Lord is my shepherd. I, don't, I lack no good thing. That's what the Bible says. So if you are unmarried, um, then you need to be encouraged by just by that, especially um, if you are unmarried, but you aspire to be married. Now is the time as an unmarried person for you to get your bearings about what marriage is. To push aside all the like all the fairy tales and all the romantic comedies and all the uh, those kinds of things, and also to push aside all of the like ig- bad examples that you see around you and all that kind of stuff. And you really, this is the time for you to just to laser focus on what does God say about marriage. That's that's it's your time for that. Um, if you do not aspire to be married, then it is a time for you to figure out how to help those around you who are married or are going to be married because they need some help. And that's exactly what God has in mind. Uh, and one quick side note, parents, you need to be training your children in this kind of view of marriage. Now is, the, now is when their ideas and beliefs about marriage are being cultivated. And part of that is by watching you. Part of that is by you like pointing them to the Lord and what the Lord has to say. And so you might think that they're too young to pick up on it, but they're not too young to pick up on, pick up on it. They're watching. And they're, it's forming these expectations that they then may drag into a marriage one day. And uh, you don't want to be the reason why they're like in counseling one day, right? Like they'll be there because we all need to be there, but just you just don't want it to be you, right? No? Okay. All right. You don't. Now... As you're living life's mission, when you are married, here's what happens. Like for Adam, Adam had no community. He had the garden, he had the animals, but there's nothing, nothing like him. And God said that was not good. And so uh, here he was with no community. He was in charge of creation care. Um, he was supposed to like somehow like be fruitful and multiply. And that, none of that could happen on his own. None of that could happen on his own. So God made him a helpmate that was fit for him. And so there comes a point on life's mission where it's, it's you and the Lord. He's your strong rescuer. You have a community around you. And if God leads you into marriage, he is, is adding a, like a third component. He's adding a committed helper in that mission. They're committed to you. You're committed to them. That helper doesn't replace, doesn't replace community. That helper doesn't replace the rescue of the Lord. It's just a third component that God looks at your life and says, in order for you to do what I have in front of you, in order for you to do what I have in front of you, you got to commit to each other because you're going to need to be helpers to each other. And so the married and the unmarried really kind of have the same situation, except for the married have this like third component. 
called a helpmate. So for Adam, God custom designed this helpmate for for him. Um, for us today, there comes a point where God says, "Hey, it's it's time to bring some in, someone in to come alongside you and help you." And so you leave your father and your mother, you hold fast to one another, and the two become one, and you enter into that mission together. So what does that what does that look like in a like when God designed marriage? What did He have in mind in addition to the helpmate part of it? Paul kind of talks about that here. So look at Ephesians five, starting in verse twenty two. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So let's walk through this passage for a few minutes because I think here is the key. I, th- I think this is this is the most dense explanation of of marriage that we'll find in the Bible. There are certainly other places, and we'll look at those in the next two weeks. But this, if you had to master one passage of Scripture in regard to your marriage, this would be the one. Um, verses 22 and 23 and 24, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover more of that stuff next week. So if you're dying to know about submission, be sure to come back next time. Um, but really, if you want to know the, the main idea, look at verse 32. Verse 32 is, is, is the big one. This is the, the key idea in the passage. He says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This, this mystery of how, how you leave your parents, you hold fast to one another, and, and you, the two become one. This mysterious thing that has been around from the very, very beginning. Here we are all these years later, and Paul's like, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why it's, it's such a beautiful mystery. I'm going to solve it. It's because it has nothing to do with the husband and the wife. Like we've made it into this, we've made it into this thing where, you know, these weddings, weddings are like this mega industry and there's all this money and all this hype and all this whatever. And weddings are awesome, but weddings are not really what God is into all that much in the way that we are into it. And even marriage itself, there's all kinds of books and advice and all these kind of things out there. But really, Jesus is like, well, the reason why we get so hyped up about marriage is because it is a shadow of something heavenly. It is a, it is a reflection of Jesus' love for his church, for his people. It's God toward his people. 
It's God is the husband, his people are the wife. There's this, this becoming one, there's this holding fast, there is this covenant commitment, there's this depth of intimacy that is there between God and his sons and his daughters. Um, that's why marriage is such is this beautiful mystery is because it's about something that's greater. So you're you're experiencing the the another one of those times where the the veil between heaven and earth is very thin. That's what marriage is. You should feel you should understand the Lord more by the way a husband and wife love one another. Whether you are the husband and wife or whether you're observing the husband and wife, there should be a thinness between earth and heaven whenever that's really happening in the way that it's supposed to. And so marriage is, a, it's a, I've heard it one time described as a parable that's alive. You know, we read parables in the Bible, but this is one that's, that's acted out every single day. So in your homes, that is a parable that is happening. When you are out in public and you're interacting, that is a parable that's being like acted out for others to see. And it's, hey, look how Jesus loves us. Watch, watch the way that we love one another. That's how it's supposed to go. Um, so your kids are growing up watching a parable. And your goal is for it to be the most accurate parable that they've ever seen in regard to this. That's part of why this series is the way it is. So if you're trying to, if, if you're a duplicate of the original... Um, and you, you kind of have all that in, in mind. Um, this passage speaks a lot about the husband and not a lot about the wife. And there are probably different reasons for that. Like, why does he talk about the husband? The husbands have to be Jesus and the well, the wives, they just had to be the church. Like the, the church is a brat, you know, like wives are like, I don't really want to be like that necessarily. You know, the church has some issues. Um, and then the guys are like, yeah, we'll try to be Jesus. You know, like that's, that's kind of tough side of the equation as well. Um, probably the reason why Paul addresses husbands here is because in that day, uh, wives were kind of like property and there was a very, like there was an abuse of this kind of like masculine patriarchal, like whatever over women. And there was kind of a women are down here, men are up here kind of thing. And so Paul is, is really probably speaking to like a, like, let me correct this cultural norm. Let me hit the reset button for you dudes a little bit. But when you start to read it though, there really is not a difference between the way a husband is called to love his wife and, and the way a wife is called to love her husband. He speaks to husbands here, but in reality, this is more about how spouses are to treat one another. So that's how I'm going to approach it. It's not so much, let me harp on the husbands and the wives get to just do whatever. This is really a calling to all of us. And unmarried folk, guess what? We're not off the hook because there's really nothing that they're called to here that we're not called to as well in regard to all of our relationships. So there's kind of a baseline here that we're all involved in this and all being spoken to this. Except you guys that are married, you have made promises. You're connected to one another. And so that kind of puts a little bit different context on there. So look, let's walk through it. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That right, that right there is the model for how we're all to treat one another. If you're in covenant with another person, if you are a spouse, your husband and wife, that should be the, the defining hallmark of your marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, love your husbands as Christ loved the church. That is the, he is the original. He is the, he is the model for this. 
everything that you have, everything about your marriage and all about your wedding is a shadow of what that's supposed to look like. And so that is the standard. And in, in every situation, you can come back to that example. Like in every single situation of your marriage, every single situation that you face, you can come back down to how does Jesus love us? That is the starting point. I'll talk a little bit more about that, of course. But in my like, like, like my pastoral goal for married couples is is for this to be a part of your like the normal rhythm of your marital life, for it to be a normal thing for for a, a couple to come into a situation, um, and, it, and it, it could be anything. Um, major, minor, whatever, but to come into a situation and a part of your process is to say, okay, um, how does Jesus deal with us with something like this? Just to ask that simple question. And sometimes it may be really obvious and sometimes you might, might be, you might have to dig for it a little bit. Sometimes it'll be a specific story. Other times more maybe like an overview But one of my goals is for, at our church, in our marriages, a regular thing that happens is when facing adversity of any sort and trying to figure out how do we proceed here, a part of your process is to consider how Christ loved the church. Because I think if you can do that, like if that can be a normal part of your married life, and if you have kids, if they come up under that same sort of process... And if you're in a community group and you're sharing with them how to like be a part of your life and you're, you're including that in there as well. And these, like, if that is, is a like normal rhythmic thing where we're basically throwing back to the early nineties and saying, what would Jesus do? Like if we could do that really, then I absolutely believe that, that we will continue to move closer and closer and closer and closer to an accurate picture of Christ in the church. And that that will make a difference in our, in, in our internal life as a church and as those who are coming in and, and as we're going out into the city and those kind of things, I believe that it will really just radically change uh, our, our witness and our presence and our words and our, our actions. Um, so that's one of my goals is for this idea to just become embedded in who we are. Um, and, but that's a, that's a thing that maybe I'm the only one who wants that. Um, but I hope not. I hope that you would want that. I hope that you'd see the wisdom in that. But really, that's something that you either do or you don't do. Let's let's follow Paul's logic, though, because this is not like an original thought. I'm just doing what he said to do, basically. Um, So in verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he gets really specific. So he kind of shifts gears away from marriage for a second and just shifts into, like, the awesomeness of Jesus. This is, these are the ways that he like loved the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So in a couple of verses... He, it's almost like Paul, like maybe got caught up in marriage for a second. He's like, man, as Christ loved the church, and he just rattles off this really succinct, like, set of ideas, which basically involves self sacrifice, um, 
like a like a a purging of sin so that we could become like vessels of God's use and a preparation and a, a cleansing of sin in, in, in baptism and salvation so that ultimately he brings us to the Lord and presents us holy and spotless and perfect. And in order for that to happen, he had to die. And so essentially a, a call to love your spouse as Christ loved the church is a call to die. So that she can live, so that he can live, so that we can flourish. It seems as if for a second, Paul maybe just got kind of caught up in it. It was like, how stunning that Christ would love the church unto her own holiness, that that was his agenda, that was his goal. And so the primary way that a spouse can love the, their, their spouse is to prioritize the pursuit of personal holiness, both for yourself and for the one that you're married to. I believe that that is what this text is saying. Husbands and wives, love one another as Christ loved the church, whatever it takes for them to be everything that God has for them that they would be holy and perfect and without blemish. That is your goal. It's not to live a certain kind of lifestyle. It's not to figure out how to file your taxes. It's not trying to get to a certain like status of living. It's not about just trying to get debt free. It's not about having kids. It's not about you know, all those kinds of things. All those kinds of things are good and they have their right place, but your primary goal is your own holiness and the holiness of your spouse. If you want to love one another as Christ loved the church, then you make that your number one goal. What does that, what does that even mean? You know? What does it mean to, to work for the holiness of your spouse? There's a, a couple years ago, I, I don't know where this came from, but this kind of twofold idea about holiness, that it kind of has, has two two ways of thinking a part of of what it means that god is holy it means that he is separate from sin that here we are every single aspect of our being has been impacted by sin and god has not been impacted by sin in any way in his being in his character in anything else so there's a purity about god that is different than us so he is completely other than us in that way and Jesus comes and he forgives that sin and, and he, he sanctifies us. He is making us more and more and more like him. He's, he's bringing us closer and closer and closer to the image that we were created in. And so a part of a spouse seeking the holiness, uh, seeking your own holiness and that for your spouse is to prioritize the like separation from sin and the ongoing like, growth and maturity into Christlikeness. That you're both called to. It's when there is there is anger, there is greed, there is lust, there is um, uh, pride. There is all these things that begin to surface in your life, and you're like, "No, that is not who I am. That's who I used to be." And that when that begins to surface, you don't just you you can no longer just think like, "Well, I'm just kind of I'm just kind of having a prideful week," you know. If you're married, that's, that, 
like what you're essentially saying is not only do I not care about my own holiness, I don't care about my spouse's holiness either. Because the two have become one, and so everything about you affects the other one. It's like when a woman is pregnant and, and she suddenly becomes like very, very aware of what she's eating and what she's ingesting because the baby is directly affected by that. In a very similar way, husbands and wives together, your own pride and all those kinds of things, all that sin, it not only is destructive for you, but it's also destructive for your spouse. And so part of what this means is that you don't, you don't just look the other way. You, re, you refuse to just settle for less than the holiness to which Jesus has provided for you. And it's always best, as I have learned from friends who are married, it's always best to handle your own stuff rather than to have to have your spouse call you out on it because that usually goes super well from what I hear. But that is the role of a helpmate, though. The role of a helpmate is to say, hey, look, I love you. Like there is no, nothing is changing that here. But you've kind of been loving yourself a lot lately, haven't you? You kind of think that you're awesome, don't you? Or to say like, hey, don't you think that the way you're approaching this financial issue, it's, it's tax return season, let's use that, that's fine. Like, hey, don't you think you're getting a little bit like, uh, like Scrooge McDuck over there with this like, like money that we just came into? Do you think you're being a bit greedy with how you're looking at that? Do you think that, do you think that the like, angry outburst you've had lately, you think that's okay? You think that's not affecting me? Not only should a spouse deal with their own stuff, but they should also be ready to address it in, in the other, because that's a part of what a helpmate does. That's part of what, why God put you together. That you're a helpmate's, in the finances, your helpmates in raising the kids, your helpmates in all these kind of things, but primarily your helpmates in each other's holiness. And so the first part of this would be like handle your business for yourself and uh, learn how to not be afraid to address the other one in case they are not handling their business. But your job is not to call them out. Your job is to say, I, this is what I'm seeing. And I want more than anything to help you not be angry, not be greedy, not be prideful, not deal with lust, not whatever it is. I I want to help you in holiness. Now, that conversation, I would imagine there's an art to that, where that conversation doesn't like turn to some big explosive like thing where you're just throwing just baggage that you've been storing up, you know, that kind of thing. But can you just objectively embrace that, that concept though for a second? Without bringing your own stuff into it, husbands and wives, can you, just, can, you, can you just embrace the fact that here you are trying to pursue holiness and you have a helpmate who is also pursuing holiness and you can help one another to do that. That that is like the number one goal of your marriage is to be everything that Christ is to the church. This is how he has loved us. This is how you are to love one another. Separate from sin. And the second idea is, is devoted to the glory of God. Just, I mean, completely devoted to, uh, to him, to walking with him, to being with him, to just that closeness with him. And so those of you who are married, you are, you're so blessed to have someone to help you do that. 
someone who has committed to you and said, I'm not going anywhere. That that is the ideal. Now, of course, you know I'm speaking in ideals. I can do that as an unmarried dude, right? I know that it's not as easy as this, but it's important to, to me, and I think you can, you'd agree, it's important to know what the standard is, though. What does God have in mind so that we know what we're aspiring to? A helpmate in holiness. That's what God has called you to and given you. So the primary way that spouses can love each other is to prioritize the pursuit of personal holiness for yourself and for your spouse. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. As I was saying, now that the two have become one, everything affects your spouse. So if you are, if you are having a, if you are being prideful, it, it affects the church, it affects the community group, it affects the friendships, it affects the workplace. It affects your kids differently than those other environments, though. But it affects your spouse differently than, than all of them. Because it, it, it is a direct impact there. When the two have become one. Everything impacts one another. And so, so, you have to, so you're investing deeply into one another as helpmates. Notice that he says in verse 29, No one ever hated his own flesh, but, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church. What does it mean to nourish and cherish your spouse? I think it is as simple as considering Jesus' example and acting on it. That in a marriage where the husband and the wife are, they are nourishing and cherishing that relationship, that, that covenant commitment, I think it really does come down to stopping and asking how to... How does Jesus handle this with us? And then you just do that thing. That that is cultivating a, a depth of love and commitment that is an accurate copy of the original. It's enacting the parable correctly. So I started to think, how does Jesus do this with us? Like, how does Jesus do this with the church? If he is the, if he is the model... So I sat down and said, I'm just going to make a list of the first however many things that come to mind. How does Jesus nourishing and cherishing us as the church? The first thing is that he died for our sins, he rose from the grave, and sent the Spirit to dwell in us. You cannot do that for your spouse. There's a, there's a, is a, there's a part of loving your spouse as Christ of the church that you, that you cannot do because Jesus is the only one that can do that. And in that first thought that came to my mind, God was like, yeah, so... Right away, you know your place as a husband, as a wife. It's not to be a savior. Your place is to point them to the savior. That you want to nourish and cherish your marriage, pointing one another to the savior. Now, there's a bunch of other things on here that Jesus has done and is doing that I believe that we can still do. So I'm just going to run through this list real quick. And if you can't keep up, I'll email it to you. Um, He's given us his practices to follow. Like he's, we see him modeling 
being in the scriptures and being in prayer and we see him practicing solitude and and silence and we see him being generous and we see him living simply um there are these disciplines these practices that jesus has given to the church to do and so a part of nourishing and cherishing your marriage is to encourage one another in doing these things and you do some of these things together and you also create space for the other one to be able to do it so there's, there's prayer, right? So there's praying together and there's creating space for the other one to be able to go off and pray by themselves. So it's like if you have kids, it's like I'll take the kids so you can go be alone with the Lord. Which is not a passive aggressive hint that like you're having a bad day. It's just saying like if ever you want some time with the Lord, let me know. I'll take the kids, that kind of thing. He's given us his practices. He's given us a community to journey with. So don't forsake the assembly. Like make make the gathering of the saints a priority in your family. Don't just be like, oh well, we'll miss for this, we'll miss for this, we'll miss for this, we'll miss for this. That's not that's not what Jesus has done for the church. The church, like the gathering of the saints, is a priority for Christ. That's why He's called us together to do that. And so, um, a part of how you can love one another well is making this or community group or gathering with friends, like like being around other Jesus followers for the sake of fellowship, for worship, for the all those kind of things. That is a priority. So don't just let it just kind of fall in if it's convenient for a weekend. I realize I'm speaking to people who are in church, so you know I'm not like getting on to you. I'm just saying that, that I think that's a thing that He's given us. Recognize the power of the spoken word. That's one way that He nourishes and cherishes us. Is um, you know with with His words He He builds up and He creates and. We know with words we can also tear down and destroy. And so Jesus, toward us, understands the power of spoken word. So when we read his, his like the things that he said, the words written in red, they're all very strategic. He's very careful with those things. That Jesus is not one who, um, who beats people over the head with his words. And so a part of loving each other as Christ loved the church is being very aware of the power that your words contain and you using those words to build up and to bring life and to create rather than to tear down and to destroy. He keeps his promises to us. He reveals the Father to us. He is always full of grace and full of truth together. He is constantly interceding for us so if you don't pray together as husband and wife you are not imitating christ in the church while on earth he walked with the father and he was dependent on the spirit for us there was self-sacrifice there was obedience he was active in conflict resolution and not passive Um, He lived a life of order, even though he had a lot going on. He was never hurried. He was ordered. He was generous with his time. He was generous with his money. He was generous with his life. He continually entrusted himself to the Father. He lived by faith and not by sight. Constantly pointing us to the Father. 
He was gracious. He was compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's holy. That's just a list off the, off the dome. <laughs> we have to know the, the original in order to know what we're copying. Studying him, knowing what, you're, what to imitate. So in all things, Jesus is the model. Here's, here's the landing point. So when you're saying, how do we handle this conflict? How do we communicate? How do we overcome this financial debt? How do we deal with, with um, the fact that we have a sick parent? How do we deal with a difficult in-law? How do we suffer well? How do we serve as helpmates in holiness? How do we handle the stress at work? How do we order our lives? How do we fit everything in this week? How do we correctly? Uh, how do we think correctly about our kids and all their activities? How do we get past the hurt that sin has caused? How do we forgive each other? How do we pray together more consistently? How do we open up to one another? How do we turn this ship around? How do we even know where to begin? In every one of those things, and anything else you could throw in that list, Jesus has shown us what to do. Sometimes it is very obvious. Sometimes you, your mind will go right to a verse, right to a story, right to something like that. And other times, it's more of a, it's a principle that he taught or something like that. But it's worth your time to dig into it and figure out what's going on and how you can imitate him as husband and wife. Your spouse doesn't need a savior. They just need a helpmate. That's you. And you need a helpmate. That's them. You already have a Savior. So again, at the end of the day, marriage really comes down to understanding who, who God is. If you understand who He is and how He relates to us, you are ahead of the game in, having, in walking in the fullness of marriage. So let me read two things to you in closing. If you would, just close your eyes. Just listen to me read this real quick. I'll read this from two perspectives. One's from the church perspective and one's from your perspective. I just kind of rewrote that passage. Love one another as Christ loved us, us in this room, and gave himself up for us, that he might sanctify us, having cleansed us by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present us to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we might be holy without blemish. That's the, that's the goodness of this God that created marriage and friendship and all these relationships. This is what he has done. This is who we're imitating. To make it even more personal, says love one another as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. That he might sanctify you, having cleansed you by the washing of water with the word. So he might present you to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that you might be holy and without blemish. And pray for us. Father, I'm thankful. Thankful for the reality that is ours because of what Jesus has done. That he said yes to the plan and that you empowered him to come and that you raised him from the dead. That he entrusted himself to you for the resurrection and 
We thank you for sending the Spirit to us that could apply that salvation to the, those of us who were in over our heads and needed rescue. So we thank you, God, that you are our strong rescuer. Just you. And in seeking to love one another as you have loved us, which is a mandate that we're all under. I'm thankful for the scriptures. I'm thankful for the the fact that we can read it. We can we can be in awe of what we see. The fact that we can sing about it together. We can share our experiences together. I'm thankful that we're not hoping this happens one day, but we're celebrating what has happened already and how that makes a difference in every day of our lives. And as we look down the road of our future, there's so much uncertainty, but there, like you are the guarantee. And so, God, I'm thankful for your example to us. I do pray for the marriages in the room who are wanting to imitate you more accurately. I pray for all of us, though, as sons and daughters who, uh, who see this kind of love and the call to imitate it. I pray that you would give us the courage and the faith to rise to the, to the occasion, rise to the challenge. We love you deeply. We are grateful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. If you're, if you're new here, um, we kind of have a, a couple of different options of response. You may feel different things stirring in you. We want to give you a chance to um, to just kind of process that for a f- just a few minutes before we dismiss. Because once we go, you know, everything kind of gets crazy again. So here are a couple of the options. We're going to sing. And so if you're if you want to do that, we'd love for you to sing. Um, you can come down here for prayer. These steps are open. If you feel like coming and kneeling uh, would, be, would be helpful to you, you can bring people with you. We have a few of our ministers on the front row who would love to talk with you, pray with you about anything, especially if you're, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, y'all keep talking about like walking with the Lord and salvation. Also, I have no idea what you're talking about. These dudes would love to explain that to you. They'll be here for prayer. We have a uh, two communion lines. This is the kind of communion where you, you take the bread and you dip it in the juice and you take it yourself. And they're going to say the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ poured out for you. That as we're dialing into more and more and more um, the sacrifice that he made for us, he's given us this tangible practice to come and to take the bread and to take the juice as a, as a physical reminder of what he has done for us. To love each other as Christ loved the church, uh, communion represents that beautifully and is, a, is meant to bless us and be a reminder of that. And so any of those things that may help you connect to what God's stirring in you before we go, we want to give you a chance to do that. So our communion lines are open, and we'll begin to sing, and you can come whenever you're ready.